faith always requires an object, and that object is, is Jesus. And when we invoke the name of Jesus coupled with faith, God does some very incredible things in uh, not only your life, but in the lives of people that you're praying for and praying over. And uh, we have seen and been blessed over the last several years just watching people, um, God just healing people in miraculous ways physically and emotionally and uh, just, you know, tied to, um, to events in their lives that were very painful, that were very ugly, that, that gave them freedom to overcome those things in their lives that kept them chained to the past. And so we are so grateful for the name of Jesus, and we're here to exalt and lift up the name of Jesus. And so that's kind of why we're in the book of Romans, because Paul said that salvation is available to everyone. It is the it is through the, the gospel that is Jesus, right, the death, burial, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and he says it is the power of God unto salvation, that power to save us, to, to help us in healing, and to help us in deliverance from the areas of our lives that we feel trapped, that we continually are falling in, and stumbling in over and over again, where Satan has put a, a stronghold in our mind uh, that keeps us chained to those things that we want to get our get rid of, uh, you know, out of our lives, but we just can't seem to do that. So we're so grateful for that song that just reminds us this, this powerful name of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, let's go to Romans chapter 10. We're making our way through the entire book of Romans, and on this series, it's called Grip by Grace. We're talking about God's grace, which some people have defined it as God's riches, and is everything God wants to bless you with at Christ's expense, right? So Jesus is the one who opened the doorway for God's grace to be a part of our everyday lives and our existence. So uh, hopefully you picked up a bulletin when you walked in. Uh, there is an outline this morning. It will come up on the screen as we make our way through uh, the book of Romans. Now, I told you from the outset that Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are the three most difficult chapters in all the New Testament. So we're kind of wading our way through there, but I'm trying to put this in very practical terms. And so I want to talk today about the gospel and how it is for everyone and why that is such an important concept, that it is available to everyone. And so the tension that Paul's been dealing with in these three chapters is God's sovereignty, that God's, God is, you know, he's in, he's in control, uh, he, he's the one who determines his will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, but then there's human responsibility, right? So uh, God can, you know, issue his will for something, but you and I have to determine, are we going to follow God or are we not going to follow God? Now, as a pastor, I, uh, I conduct funerals, and I, over the past 35 years, have conducted hundreds and hundreds of funerals. Here's one of the things I know about every funeral I've ever been a part of, whether I was, you know, preaching in that funeral or not, or I'm just there because it's a friend or it's a, a family member. <clears throat> Every single person, every single time, whoever is laying in that casket, everyone says the same thing. And the, you know what the sayings are, right? Well, um, they just look to be, it's, they just look to be at peace, or they're in a better place, or at least they're not suffering anymore. And we make statements like that. Um, certainly, we want to be there for the family, we want to comfort the family. It's not a time for, for brutal honesty. But if we were brutally honest, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that when a person dies physically on planet Earth, that they've gone to a better place, that they're resting in peace, and that they're not suffering. 
Now, my mother, in the last six months of her life, uh, suffered from an, a, a very a traumatic uh, stroke, which left her paralyzed on one side, and un, unable to speak and communicate. And uh, she, she passed after six months of going through rehab and therapies and being in a nursing home for a while and, and back home. And I could honestly say, because I know that she is a follower of Jesus, on Mother's Day many years ago, she walked down this aisle, she gave her life to Christ, and she followed up Jesus in believer's baptism and just became a, a student of the Word. So I know that, yes, when she died, that she's in a better place. She's no longer suffering physically. God's going to give her a brand new body one day and that, um, you know, she's with Jesus. I understand that. I know that. So the Bible makes it quite clear, and Jesus himself made it quite clear, that not everybody is going to a better place no matter what. So the widespread denial that there is a different place, or there is the holiness and the judgment of God, in spite of his grace and love that he has on one side, but there's holiness and justice on the other side, how do you marry those two things together? How, how do you bring those together with the sovereignty of God and the human will that God gave to us, the freedom to choose, how do you bring those things together when it comes to, um, to death? Because nothing uh, confronts us quicker than when somebody dies about eternity, right? People are forced to think about life after this life. By and large, we just ignore that. We put it in the rear view, you know, a mirror of our lives and if we're forced to, to deal with it, we will, but otherwise, uh, we, we don't. And so, we often play um, the card with God, well, you know, I don't know about this person, but they had a good heart, or they were a very sincere person, they were very kind, they were very understanding. And so, we, we develop this, all people go to a better place, out of the flawed theology of that all roads lead to heaven, Everyone might be traveling a different road, but everyone is eventually going to get there, right? So this is the uh, substance of all religions, right? Everybody has their own theory about what it means to, you know, make it to heaven, to the afterlife, to a better place where there's no more pain and suffering and, and sorrow. And so this religion says, well, follow this and do this. This one says, follow this and do this. And then you have Christianity that says, well, no, it's in Jesus. It's all about Jesus and so we just believe in our heart of hearts that this is just the way it is. There's multiple roads. We're all going to end up in the same place eventually, and it'll all be, it'll all be good. Well, this is not what the Bible teaches at all. And here's why this is important that we have this discussion. is because if we say that all roads lead to heaven, or that you're going to end up in a better place bypassing Jesus, then you're saying that the cross... And salvation is really not that important. It might be important for some people, but it's not important for all people. It might be important for, you know, those who commit really heinous crimes and are really bad people, but, you know, I'm pretty much a, a good person, and therefore it really is not applicable to me. And this puts us at odds with God and His Word. It eventually devalues the cross, redefines salvation, and it kills any sense of urgency within the body of Christ to tell others about why they need Jesus in their life. Now, the early church was bent on taking the gospel to every known human being they could find. They were willing to 
to suffer persecution, to suffer the loss of jobs, to suffer the loss of their lives if, if necessary, to get the gospel to every single human being. Now, we here in America, we're not going to lose our lives because we're telling people about Jesus. We're not going to lose our jobs unless, you know, you get really confrontational at work and your boss says, don't do that anymore, and you just keep pressing the issue. You might lose your job. So you're not going to lose your life, right? Nobody's going to kill you because you're sharing Jesus. But here's the fear in, in that in the church today, the reason why we don't have this sense of urgency about telling people about the gospel, about Jesus, and why it's important in their life is because we don't want to feel embarrassed. We're fearful of being rejected. We're fearful of people saying, well, he's that guy. You really don't want to be around that guy because he's going to try to tell you about Jesus. We're, we really want to be liked by everybody. Do you know that Jesus was not liked by everybody? That's why in the Gospels, it constantly would say they picked up stones. They were going to kill him. He, listen, if people rejected Jesus' message to them and they walked away, he never went running after them. He never pursued them. It's not that they weren't important to him. It's not that he didn't love them. It's that they made the human decision that I am rejecting the message that you are giving to me. And so we want to talk about why the, the gospel is for everyone and why it is so important. It's because of this. Salvation, this is the first fill in your blank. Salvation, the Bible says, and Romans, Paul has been beating this you know, this hammer over and over again, salvation is found in Christ alone by faith alone. Not Jesus plus your good works, not Jesus plus the fact you come to church, not Jesus plus the fact that you pray, or Jesus plus the fact you carry a Bible. It is Christ alone by faith alone that results in salvation, that is God forgiving us of our sins enveloping us into Christ and he into us and he justifies us in God's eyes. He says, I'm taking your sin record and I'm crediting it to Jesus' account. I'm taking his righteousness, crediting it to your account so that therefore now you can stand before me righteous in my eyes and just as if you have never committed an act of sin in your entire life. But it's not Jesus plus something else. It's not, listen, the question Paul answers in this particular chapter is this. Can anyone be saved apart from Christ? Anyone. Not someone, anyone. And the answer that he's going to give in this chapter, a spoiler alert, is no. There is no one who has ever been saved, who has ever entered into heaven apart from Jesus Christ. You say, well, what about those who can't understand? Or what about those who have never heard? Well, hang on. We'll touch on that in a moment. But in chapters 1 through 10, Paul has built these three premises to help us understand why the gospel is so important, why everyone needs to hear about it, and then what put, gets put into our corner of, of our lives is our responsibility. What are we going to do with this message? What are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to accept him and his message? Or are we going to reject him and say, well, the time's not right for me. This is not right for me. I just really don't 
feel like I need this in my life. So here's the first premise that Paul gives us, and we found this in chapter 1 in particular, and a little bit in chapter 3, and it's this. Everyone, everyone, not some people, everyone has heard about God and rejected Him. Every single one of us. This is his whole scenario. You'll notice, so let's go back in Romans chapter 1 just to set up the context for today. In verse 18, he says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now remember, the wrath of God doesn't mean God's sending lightning bolts from heaven down on you, upon you. It's not what it means. It just simply means that people, have, instinctively God has the Bible says, has put eternity in our hearts, that people instinctively know that there is something beyond ourselves, that there is a God out there that created. Now, they may not have a name for him. They may not know what to call him, but they just know that something, someone transcendent, that is above and beyond all time, space, and matter, created time, space, and matter, and that somehow, someway, we're going to be accountable to that God. And so what people do, he says, is they suppress that truth, right? It's like, I don't want to accept that. I, I, I don't want to live by that. I want to be my own little God. I want to call my own shots, and I just want to be in control of my life. And so he says, the wrath of God is, so the wrath of God simply means, I give you over to what you want. You don't want God in your life? God says, okay, if that's what you're bent on doing, I'll let you live that way. If you want to try to earn your way into heaven, into God's presence, well, that's not the way to do it, but if that's what you're bent on doing, I'll let you travel that pathway. Now, notice he uses two words here, godlessness, which means corruption in our vertical relationship. In other words, instead of being humbled and submissive and trusting of the God who created us, we have become proud and rebellious and unbelieving. And then the word uh, wickedness means corruption on our horizontal side of relationships, right? So we have a vertical relationship with God. We have a horizontal relationship with other people. And so rather than being loving and humble and truthful, we are self-centered, proud, and manipulating. And before you tell me people just aren't that way, uh, trust me, go to Facebook and you'll find it all. There are video reels of people fighting in the streets and in stores. And uh, I mean, you know, it's just like all hell has broken loose among humanity. And he says, now we suppress all of this truth about God because we don't want God ruling or reigning over us, and therefore we're going to just go our own way. So uh, God just gets put in, the again, the rearview mirror. And he says, it's not that people don't really know that there's a God and that we are going to be accountable to this God it's not that they don't really know. What he's saying is when he says we suppress the truth is that we just really don't want to know. Instinctively, we know, but we don't want to know. And therefore, we believe that if we can shove that in the back of our minds and out of our lives, um, then we can live however we want. So now, here's what Satan has done. Remember, there are two kingdoms, right? There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. Uh, this world is his kingdom. And so, at least temporarily, and so the kingdom of Satan, Satan comes along and he always, remember Jesus said he's, the, he's nothing but a liar and the father of lies. So here's a big lie 
that he brought into the realm of humanity all the way back in the beginning in the book of Genesis that gets fleshed out as to what Paul, if you continue to read chapter eight, uh, verses 18 and following through Romans 1, how humanity begins to treat one another, how humanity begins to come, become unraveled because we don't have this walk in relationship with God. And so it's the lie that humanity has adopted, a lie that gives someone permission to say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, or I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. It's the lie that enables people to insist that two men having sex together can be called marriage. It is the lie that turns Mother's Day into birthing people's day. It is the lie that is, you know, uh, convincing society that we ought to take our children in public schools in elementary in the early stages of their, their, their lives and teach them about all kinds of sexual perversion and it's the same lie that if you don't in, in, affirm my self-imposed pronouns, you're a bigot. Right? It's the lie that it simply says this. And it's not on your outlines. You need to jot this down. This is the lie that Satan gave to Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's the lie that continues to roll around in humanity's heart. And it's the lie that will cause us to come unraveled and unglued and everything that's happening in our society right now, if you read Romans chapter 1, Paul or spelled it out, God spells it out through the Apostle Paul, this is what's happening, this is what it looks like, and this is why it is happening. He calls it a reprobate mind or a mind that is given over to this lie. And here's the lie. Live by your own truth, all right? Live by your own truth, and you can be whatever you want to be. Live by your own truth, and you can be whatever you want to be. Again, that lie originated. Here's what Satan said to Eve in the garden. God, remember, had a tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he didn't want Adam and Eve to experience evil. He didn't want them to see the other side of goodness, of, of the other side of God's mercy. God gave them a thousand trees to eat from, gave them one that they were not supposed to. And so the serpent says to Eve, your eyes will be open, watch this, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, embrace your feelings and trust your desire for Godhood. That was the lie. Live by your own truth, and because you'll be your own God, you can be whatever it is you want to be. Follow your heart. And so the understanding of good and evil without any external put input, we have no capability as human beings to, ex to determine that, all right? We, we can say things that were once evil are now good, and we can say things that in the future that we would consider evil will one day be good, and so we need only to look deeply within ourselves and obey our own inclinations and desires, find out who we really are. Choose whatever lifestyle you want. Our goal is our personal identity, being our own God. The goal, the driving force behind all of humanity, because people say this all the time, I just want to be happy. But in our pursuit of happiness, as we've thrown off all restraints and truth, has put us into misery. People are not happier than they used to be. Suicide rates are off the charts, drug use, 
you name it. People fighting. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely incredible. And so the two great influencers in our country that perpetuated this lie, if you look back through our history to now, was Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. Karl Marx believed and taught that the ruling class must be overthrown, which begins by deconstructing your past and then making your utopia future whatever it is you want it to be. But if you're going to have a utopia free future out here, you've got to get rid of what was back here. So now we have deconstruction in our country. Let's get rid of all history because, you know, it's bad and people did bad things. We know it bad, was bad and we know people did bad things, but people also did good things. So we're going to deconstruct that. We're going to reconstruct what it is that we want this utopia. In other words, what Karl Marx says, we know that humanity has problems and if these problems are going to get solved, it must be by humans. But God comes along and says, no, 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 you don't understand Humanity, we are the problem, and Jesus is the solution to the problem. We have no capacity for changing what it is we need to change and we know ought to change because our hearts are so deceptive and our hearts are so evil and filled with godlessness that we just want to do our thing and make everyone else fall in line. And then Sigmund Freud came along and said, you know, all sexual norms must be uh, overthrown. In other words, we need to sexually liberate everybody, and therefore, uh, who is the greatest oppressor over sexuality? The Christians. We got to get rid of the Bible. We got to get rid of the Christians because they are keeping us, hindering us from all sexual freedom and expression. Now, I will agree that there has been a time in church history in which Christians were just that. They were sexually oppressive, right? Uh, I don't know if you understand this. Sex was God's idea. Uh, he's the one who, who developed it. But he did put parameters around it for our own good. And so this is why in our day and time, if you are a parent and you go to a school board meeting and you are in opposition of having your first grader being introduced to sexualized um, all kinds of sexual things, you are labeled now as a domestic terrorist, right? This is actually happening in our day and time. And so when you put all of this together, um, we are perpetuating something from the kingdom of darkness that ultimately is not going to end up well. And so people ask me all the time, hey, uh, is the world so bad that, you know, th that, that, you know, Jesus is like, this is the end of the world? Listen, the world is, is, is in a really tough position right now. Um, I don't think it's the end of the world, but I do think it's the world that's going to be here at the end. And what I mean by that is this. The Bible teaches us that in the end, when Jesus comes back, that, um, and he establishes his kingdom for a thousand years on this earth, that when he does that, the, the world's, the society. Uh, of the world will be a Republican Rome, all right? And so if you look at Rome and all of the deviations that they had and the wickedness and the godlessness that was rampant in the Roman Empire, the Bible says this is the way the world's going to be when Jesus comes back, and we're heading in that direction. We have that trajectory going on right now. We're not there. We're not quite as bad as Rome is yet, but we're heading that way. And so what is the end result? 
The end result of all of this is that salvation exists. It is self-generated and self-driven. In other words, we can rescue ourselves by our own personal insights, our potential, and our own you know, unending quest for complete liberation from all rules, all restraints, and we're just going to do our own thing. We're all going to be, you know, you live your truth, I'll live my truth, and we'll all sit around the campfire and sing kumbaya. But the God of the Bible is seen as the oppressor who must be dethroned and replaced by a new theology called, and this is the essence of sin, self. Self. I, I think a t-shirt, um, I think best sums it up, and on the back of the t-shirt said, just worship me and we'll all get along fine, all right? Or I, I, was, I was following a car yesterday, uh, had a license plate that says, I love me too, all right? So it's all about self-love, it's all about, you know, me and, and what it is that I want and what's going to make me happy. The problem with narcissism, which is really what it is, is that with narcissism, there's that false sense of pride. The false sense of pride is that if I can do enough, be enough, get enough, uh, you know, try enough stuff, that somehow, some way, I'm going to alleviate the guilt and the shame and this lack of meaning and significance in my life, and I'm just going to find it through stuff. If I just get the right job, if I live in the right house, if I have the right kids, if I have the right marriage, if I get all the right things, if all my ducks are in a row, I have health, and, I have, and, and the list is endless, and this is what we're running after. And this is what the premise is, is that Paul says that, look, premise number one is everybody has rejected God. So Paul in Romans 10 says, here's why Israel, God's chosen people, rejected him, rejected Jesus. Remember last week? Jesus was a stumbling block to them. Ah, now we don't want Jesus as our Messiah. That's why we crucified him. The same reason they were rejected Christ is the same reason people do it today, and here it is. One is people refuse to listen to God. They just refuse to listen to him. So in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they must be saved. All right? Who are the Israelites? The Jewish people. Who are they going to get saved through? Paul's been saying all through this book, through Jesus, faith alone and Christ alone. But they rejected him. They crucified him. He became a stumbling block to them, is what Paul said in, in uh, verse 33 of Romans 9. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. They were zealous for God. What does it mean to be zealous for God? To please him, to honor him, um, to believe in him, to serve him. But notice he says it wasn't based on accurate knowledge. In other words, the people did a lot of things, right? If you looked at the Jewish people, what did they do? They prayed every day. They gave, you know, to, to those to help the poor. They were in synagogue every week. I mean, they did a lot of religious things. They were zealous in their heart. They were sincere in their religion. But their sincerity was misplaced. They were doing what they were doing because they're trying to earn their way into God's presence. They believe that because we are of the lineage of Abraham, that we are automatically in. When God established a covenant with Abraham, it's called the Old Covenant or the Old Testament of your Bible, right? There were five covenants that God made throughout the Old Testament, one of which was with Abraham. 
Uh, then you come to the New Testament. It's called the New Covenant. The New Covenant was established through whom? Through Jesus Christ. God says, the world is a mess. I'm going to help clean up this mess. I'm going to send Jesus into the world so that through him, I can forgive people of their sins. I can erase the guilt and the blame from their lives so they're not feeling condemned all the time. I will indwell them with my Holy Spirit in their spirit so that I can begin to transform them and make them new from the inside out. I'll give them real meaning. I'll give them real purpose. I'll give them real life that enables them to live in freedom. And this is what the Jews rejected. They said, we don't want any part of it. They just were not willing to listen to God. God had told them all throughout their history by prophet after prophet after prophet, this Messiah was coming, and this is what he's coming to do and to be, and yet they rejected Jesus because they just didn't listen to the Lord. And so what they, you know, they were sincere. Here's what I know about sincerity. You can be sincerely wrong. Right? So they were sincerely wrong. Who wrote this letter? The Apostle Paul. Who was Paul before he met Jesus? He was a Pharisee, a very religious man, a very zealous religious man. Studied, memorized the Old Testament, studied the law day in and day out, prayed three times a day, all oh, the whole nine yards. And Paul says, in my zealousness, I forgot, I missed the very thing that God sent us, who was Christ. How did Jesus get his attention? On the road to Damascus, Jesus confronted the apostle Paul. Why are you persecuting the Christians? Why are you throwing them in jail? Why are you having them put to death? If you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. And so then Paul has this dramatic transformation, transformational uh, encounter with Christ that forever changed his life. And he comes back to his people and says, you know what? I love my people so much. I love the Jewish people so much. If I could, I would go to hell for them if they would be saved. But he says, I know that's not possible. They are zealous, but their zealousness is in the wrong place. Here's what I know about religiously zealous people. They can be the worst people. Absolute worst. They can be berating, judgmental, bigoted, um, hate, you know, hatred. I mean, just look at Facebook. All I knew about, if all I knew about Christianity was based on Facebook and what Christians post a lot of times as they get into these arguments with people is that I wouldn't want to be a Christian. I'm thinking if Jesus had a Facebook account right now, he would probably respond by hashtag whitewashed tomb, hashtag did not die for this, hashtag not elect. All right, so listen, people have rejected God's solution for humanity's problem. We won't listen. Number two is that people try to save themselves through good works, right? He picks it up in verse 3. Um, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, what righteousness came from God? Jesus. And sought to establish their own. In other words, I can be good enough and work my way to heaven. Which is what comes natural to us because we have that natural bent away from Christ. They did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they said, hey, we know Jesus is the righteousness of God and we can only be righteous through Christ. But I'm not submitting my life to Jesus. Have you ever wondered why, if somebody, if, if I had the, if, you know, I had the cure for cancer, and, um, and I, I would say to somebody, well, you know, I have the cure for cancer, 
But let me tell you about 25 other ways you can go about it. Would that be nice? Probably not. So Paul says, I've got the cure for humanity's problem. His name is Jesus. Have you ever wondered why, when God has gone through all the trouble to say, this is my solution for humanity's problem, that humanity basically rejects him? There's got to be another way. There's got there's to be some other way. There's got to be another path. There's got to be, it's because of pride. It's because I, I believe, I believe I can earn it. That I am good enough, I don't need Jesus, I don't need his forgiveness, I don't need any of that stuff. I just, I will get my way there because I'm basically a good person, which is exactly what the Bible does not teach. And so there are only two approaches to God. One is you either attempt to establish your own righteousness, which is religion spelled do, or you, um, you, uh, you have a righteousness that is given to you as a gift called grace through Christ, which is spelled done. So here's what Paul is saying. That the reason why the Israelites rejected Christ is because they believed that they could earn their way there. They didn't need him. He's a stumbling block to them. They've got a path, their own path, around Jesus in order to enter into that eternal destiny that God has promised them out there in the future. In other words, religion says this. I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. Right? I don't follow God, I don't obey God in his word and his will because I'm earning acceptance. I've already been accepted in Christ. I'm as accepted as I will ever be, and so are you. I obey out of my love and out of my gratitude. That is what drives me, not trying to earn my way into God's favor. I've already got God's favor. Have you? If you're in Christ, you do. So you want to rest in that. He says in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, Jesus fulfilled the law. You don't, you're not going to earn righteousness by trying to keep the law, by trying to do the good things. How many of you like sweet tea? Any sweet tea lovers here? Now, here's what I know about sweet tea lovers. You know, I lived in the South for a number of years. You know, that's all you can get down there is sweet tea. If you, get, if you ask for unsweetened tea, they look at you like you're from Mars. Like, who, who dropped you into our, our community? So if those of you who love sweet tea, here's the worst thing you can do. Go to somebody's house, and they go, well, we don't have any sweet tea. We have unsweet tea, but we'll give you some sugar or some sweet and low, and you can sweeten your own. How does that work? Not well. You pour in a cup of sugar into your sweet, and you're stirring, 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 and you see the sugar just kind of rolling around in there, and you, you taste it, and it's not sweet enough. You put more in there, stir, 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 and you got, you know, now you got sugar settling at the bottom of your glass, and you try to, and it just never works. This is what Paul is saying, is that if I'm trying to work my way, if I'm trying to earn my way into heaven, it's like trying to take unsweet tea and make it sweet is that I try to do all the right things. Yes, I'm going to go to church. Yes, I'm going to read my Bible. Yes, I'm going to, I'm going to give, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to serve, and I'm going to do all these things because I'm trying to sweeten my life so much that when God sees me after I leave this world, he says, man, Greg, you are so sweet by all the things you've done. Welcome. Come on into my presence. That will never happen. We can't get sweet enough. Only Jesus can make us sweet. Right? And so it's faith in Christ alone is what brings salvation 
I'm in Christ, he and he is in me. I'm righteous in God's eyes. I'm justified as though I've never sinned. He chose me, you know, showered me with his love, called me into this relationship, and I accepted the call, and I stepped into that relationship, and now I stand in the presence of God with the Holy Spirit of God within me, and it's the Holy Spirit who makes us sweet, because the, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and and in self-control, all of the things that we love in somebody, all the things we desire to be within ourselves, that, but we can't do it on our own, it's trying to take unsweet tea and making it sweet. In other words, transformation is an inside job and only God can do it. You want to have a better world? you got to have better people. And the only person who can make us better is Jesus. But we reject him. And so this is the, this is the way people, here's number one. The next one, people misunderstand the purpose of the law. Here's what the purpose of the law was. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That's what Galatians 3.24 says. Here's what Paul said. Moses described it in this way, that the righteous, righteousness that is by the law, the man who does these things will, will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will ascend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's, a, it's as close as your mouth and your, and your heart. It is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. And what is Paul saying here is simply this. The reason why salvation comes through faith alone and Christ alone is because that Jesus is the one who died, the only sinless person on planet earth, who could be the sacrifice that God would make on behalf of our sinfulness. And it is Jesus who was what? Put in the grave. And so his spirit, soul separated from his body when he was put in the grave after his crucifixion and went down into the sheol or the grave. And it was there that Jesus was. And then he was resurrected, right? He, he proved who he was by his resurrection. And he authenticated his message that he came to deliver is that Jesus, God himself, clothed himself in humanity, died for our sins, buried in the grave. The grave could not hold him. He comes up out of the grave and he shouts that of victorious. You know, Jesus is victorious. And the same victory that Jesus had is the same victory that God offers us. But it's not by keeping the law. Here's what the law does. When somebody tells you, you can't do that. That's exactly what you want to do. Right? Yeah, paint a bench and stick it out there in front of people and put a sign on that says, do not touch wet paint. Everybody's got to touch it. That's just the way we are. That's our natural, that's our natural bent. And so here's the next one. People reject the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's whole point. In verses 18 through 21, he talks about the fact that Israel rejected her Messiah. They just became obstinate, and they became disobedient in verse 21. And they just said, no, it's just not going to happen. We have another, another way. And here's what people say in our day. Because I've, I've shared my faith with many, many people. Here's oftentimes what they say. Pastor, you don't understand. I'm just not that bad. Really? Yeah, you're just not that bad. Well, let's, let's uh, so I usually take it to Romans chapter 3 and say, well, let's look at this description here and see how well you line up. All right, here's what I know. 
if you take a glass of water, now those of you who had biology in high school, you know, you take a gla you know, glass of water, a tap water, and take a drop and put it under a microscope, you understand and discern that there's all kinds of microcosmic things going on inside that water. It's not nearly as pure as you thought it was. There's things wiggling and squiggling. And so this is what God is. He says, let me put your life under my microscope because if I do that, you're going, to, you're going to understand very, very quickly, you're not nearly as good as you think you are. And when you multiply that over a lifetime, you see, it's, it's, we, we put ourselves on a scale and we say, well, you know, I know I need to be a 10 to get into heaven. I think I'm right there at 9.8. And when God gets done with us, we realize we're down here at a 1. Here's what I know about your walk with Jesus. The closer you walk with Jesus the more aware of your sinfulness you become. The further away you walk from him, the less aware you are of your sinfulness. You found that to be true as a follower of Jesus? Absolutely. I knew in my heart I needed Christ. I believed in my life, in my heart, that you know what? When I die, God's just going to annihilate me, and I just never, know, I never knew I existed. I, I dreamt up that theology on my own. And But God got a hold of me, and he showed, you know, wait, wait a minute, Greg, uh, you're, not quite, you're not quite right here. I know you're zealous about that, and you're really sincere, but you're sincerely wrong. So let me help you out. And so that's the first premise. Number, second premise is this. I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to get you out early today because it's a beautiful day out there. You can thank me later. All right, God has rightfully, therefore, he has rightfully condemned humanity. Well, how, how do we know that? Well, look in uh, Romans chapter 3, and we're just going to touch and look at this, and, and we'll, we're going to move on. Um, he says what? In, in verse 11, there's no one who understands, that speaks of your mind, no one who seeks God. How many? No one who seeks God. That's the motive. All have turned away. That's your will, the part of you makes decisions. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, run, ruin and misery marks their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Why is there no fear of God? Because I've become my own God. I've convinced myself I am God, therefore, it's my truth. I will become whatever it is I want to become, and that's just the way I'll live life. And so Paul goes on in Romans 6.23 and says, now, the wages of sin is what? It is death. It's not just physical death. It is spiritual death, separation from God. If he stopped there, we would be most miserable. But he went on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through whom? Christ Jesus. Right, so salvation in Christ alone by faith alone, which is what he's going to spell out in his, his, next, um, his next premise. And, and it's this, God has provided a way for all to be saved. Well, how has he done that? Look in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What is with your mouth? Your heart that you believe and are justified is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. 
as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, richly blesses all who call on him, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call if no one has, how, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes, watch this, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying this, the component that is necessary for us to experience a relationship with Jesus Christ is faith. As I said earlier, faith is the currency of heaven. That word believe means to trust in, to cling to, to rely upon, to adhere to. In other words, faith is, is the opposite of unbelief. Now, here's, well, here's why this is important. People are not lost because, you know, obviously we all have committed sin. Sin is not what sends you to hell, right? So people say, well, you know, at least I, because here's what we do. In our minds, we go, well, I'm a pretty good person. At least I've never done dot, 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 dot. And we compare ourselves to somebody who's done things awful, you know, that we've never done. And say, well, see, I, I'm, I'm good compared to them, right? So, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't lie, I've never murdered anyone, I've never raped anybody, I, I'm, not, I'm not an arsonist, you know, I, I don't do any of these things. You know that Jesus already died for all those sins for humanity? When Jesus died on the cross, how many times did he die? One time. For the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future. It is not the sin that's sending them to hell, it is unbelief. Here's what, you know, we all know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We have to jump down to John 3, 18. It says this, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not, what? Believed. It is unbelief that keeps people from having a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. It is their unwillingness to trust, to adhere to, to believe in, to um, put their full weight of their eternal lives in. Unbelief is powerful. Jesus said one time, listen, in my own hometown, I, I want to do all kinds of miracles there, but I couldn't because of my people's unbelief. It was unbelief that sent Israel in the Old Testament out into the wilderness wanderings for 40 years. God says, I've delivered you from Egypt to take you into the promised land. They sent spies into the promised land, said there's giants in there. We cannot overtake them. And God, because of their unbelief, said now this unbelieving generation will wander for 40 years. The key component of heaven is faith. Faith is important. He talks about the reality of faith. The reality of faith is that, you know, it's, listen, when, he, when he says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, believe in your heart and raise him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's not a two-step process in salvation. It's, well, that is what's called a Hebrew parallelism, which simply means this. You know, uh, my son-in-law conducted a wedding uh, last night, and my grandson was there. He spent the night with us, and he says, Papa. He said, Papa, 
My daddy told them to kiss, and they kissed. Ooh, yuck. It's horrible. So they did more than kiss, right? They exchanged rings, vows, you know, walked down the aisle. And so, you know, it's, it's not a set, there's not two separate events. It was one event that was, that was displayed in two different ways. Here's what Paul's saying is we are saved by faith in Christ because in our hearts we are trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. And the way that I'm going to confess that is by the way that I live. In other words, when a person is indwelt by the Spirit of God, things begin to change on the inside, and our lives become to be, become different, and therefore it is our public testimony to those around us. I'm not the same person I used to be. I don't act and do the things I used to do because I have a love for Christ, and I just want to follow Him. And so he says, this is, this is faith. It's Jesus is the object of our faith, which brings me to the root of faith. He says you've got to hear from God. He says you, consequently, faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing the message, right? So the word message, you might have a translated word. There are two Greek words, logos and rima. Logos means the word of God or the Bible. Rima means the voice of God or an utterance or God spoken to you. Here's how salvation happens. Remember, we've talked about this all along. You're not going to, when people say, well, you know, when I get good and ready, I'll come to Christ. No, you won't. Unless God draws you into that relationship, you'll never come. And the way that God does that is that he speaks to your heart. And it's like God is taking your heart and he's just like pulling you. He's inviting you into this relationship because you've not just heard the word of God. You've heard the voice of God speaking to you and drawing you into that relationship. And here's the result of faith is that God's will is done. God's will is done. Faith is not getting man's will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. And the result is I respond and I come to faith in Christ. And that is exactly what God's will and desire is for every single human being. And then there's the release of faith. Faith gets released through obedience. And God does amazing things. That one little word of faith connects us to the power behind the empty tomb. It, it, it's just saying it from the heart, man. It's makes, it makes sinners righteous. It releases the power of salvation in you. It is the word of faith that caused the lame to walk, the blind to see, the dead to come to life. It brings power into your parenting and hope into your trials, and it brings strength into your soul. So when you feel unsure about your salvation, speak the word, I, I believe in Christ. And when you face overwhelming circumstances, faith, you know, speak the word. God is in me. He's fighting for me. Greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. And when you have voices of condemnation coming upon you that's trying to just wipe you out and telling you you're never enough and you're never going to be enough, you speak the word and you say, no, but there is nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. There is therefore thou no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the word spoken over you through the power of the Holy Spirit that releases the life of God inside of you. You know, every time you prayed for me when I was battling cancer, you were releasing God's power over my life. Every time. Thousands of people all across the country. And it brings us now to the responsibility of faith. And here it is. He says, how are they going to hear? How are they going to know about this message if nobody's out there telling them? 
the only entity that God has ordained to share the good news of the gospel is the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we've experienced it. You read the book of Acts when the early church started, you'll find no one, not one single person coming to faith with Jesus in, in Jesus without a messenger. Somebody's telling them. Even when Cornelius wanted to be saved and he's praying, what did, what did God do? He sent an angel to Cornelius, but the angel couldn't give him the gospel. No, the angel had to go to Peter then and say, hey, Peter, there's a guy over here who's ready to receive Jesus. How about you go over there and share with him about how that happens? And so we have to care enough, and we have to be willing to share, and we have to be willing to pray. I will never tell people about Jesus if I don't care, if I have no compassion for them. And the only way I develop compassion for them is that I, I pray for them. And as I pray for them, I begin developing a compassion for them. And then God gives opportunities for us to share. So we have to care, we have to share, we have to pray. And I'll just close with this. You know, I, I was here on Thursday or Tuesday. I thought, I'm going to go down in front of Ace every Tuesday, Schmidt's. You know, is there, they got their food truck there. Man, I'm going to get me, some, you know, some Schmitz. I'm going to have for lunch. I get there, and guess what? They're not there. What the heck? I always forget about it, and they're always there, right? This time I remember, I get, they're not there. So I said, oh, you know, I'm just going to go home and, and, and get lunch at my house. But do you know what happened? God had a divine appointment for me with my next-door neighbor. There's a young couple that lives next to us. My wife and I have been, you know, sharing with them for a long, long time. Uh, they're about to go on vacation with her parents, and her dad was out there, and he stopped me and said, hey, you know, we started conversing, and he started asking me questions about religion and, you know, my faith and beliefs, and John came out, and we got in this conversation. In fact, we got in such a long, involved conversation that uh, her, Amber, his wife's mother, came out and scolded us. Hey, we're trying to leave. I, I, it's my fault. It's uh, my bad. All right, so this, this is what God has called us to do and to be, where we are, as we are going, as we live life, to be witnesses for Christ, because it's so important. Why? Because the gospel is for everyone, and everyone needs the gospel. So there has to be a sense of urgency. We only got so much time before Jesus comes, and it's all said and done, Right? There will be witnesses during the tribulation. We ain't going to be it. You know, God's going to have 144,000 witnesses. But by and large, it'll be a great time of great delusion. And most people will not put their trust in Christ. And those who do will ultimately lose their lives as martyrs. We live here and now. God has surrounded us with people. We have to have a sense of urgency. But as long as life is just about me, myself, and I, I'll never have that sense of urgency. But if it's about others, I love this about Jesus. When he came, he did not consider um, you know, his part to be equal with God in that he was God, equal with God. But he said, no, I'm clothed myself in humility for the sake of others. Now we clothe ourselves in humility for the sake of those who are not a part of God's kingdom. Let's pray as our worship team comes. Father, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you for supplying to us, um, God, just this incredible, um, powerful gospel message. I thank you for the people who intersected my life, 
that enabled me to come to faith in Jesus. Apart from them, Father, and apart from the drawing of your Holy Spirit, I know I would have never come. I was not seeking you in one iota. And I just pray for those, Lord, um, those people that you have put into our lives, that, Father, we just might not, not in a... Uh, judgmental way, not in a, in a way that is oppressive, but Lord, just in a loving way to be brutally honest about, you know what, um, not everyone goes to a better place, not everyone is alleviated from their suffering, not everyone is at peace because they lived here on planet earth and they left, uh, but Lord, we have, to, we have to be truthful and honest and loving and kind and compassionate the way that Jesus was. So help us to do that, Father, in this, this week that you have in front of us as we leave this building and we are your missionaries in the lives of those around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and we're going to close. If you have never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, again, Paul's whole message through all the book of Romans, God's got grace for you. His name is Jesus and that's where it is found. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'll stay here after the service is over. And if you like to talk, uh, I, I'll, I'll hang out. That's my gift, hanging out as long as you need. Let's, let's praise the Lord.